Well, listeners, we're very nearly at the end of a year, which can only be described as 2021. The world has been recovering from a global pandemic in fits and starts, with a continuing will-it-won't-it-all-be-over storyline running through everything from international politics to the way businesses operate. And despite travel and shipping disruption, society and the world economy seems to have somewhat survived, even as our lives have continued to be shaped by world affairs. To mark the end of another remarkable year, we're talking once again to a series of business leaders from across the board about the way their businesses have continued to adapt to a rapidly changing and uncertain world. Some will be familiar voices and some will bring completely new insights. This year, we'll be joined by Antonio Neri, the CEO of Hewlett Packard Enterprise, Susie Wolf, team principal of the Rocket Venturi Formula E team, Gareth Stockdale, CEO of the Microbit Educational Foundation, and Stuart McLaughlin, CEO of the Anthesis Group. I'm Michael Bird, and this is 2021 Untangled. don't need me to tell you that the world is still a rapidly changing place. What we can say is that some of the ways in which business was conducted this time in 2019 have changed long term. Home or hybrid working, video conference calls and digital meetups are now a pretty normal part of working. And with travel restrictions constantly changing, international travel has become a factor of doing business many companies are becoming wary of. All of this has had a huge net effect on our CO2 emissions, but this was unfortunately temporary. After rising steadily for decades, global carbon dioxide emissions fell by 6.4% or 2.3 billion tonnes in 2020 before picking up again in 2021. We're now just 1.2% below 2019 emissions. However, seeing what could be done and the money that could be saved with the more effective communications technology has inspired many companies to do more to tackle climate change. Doing his part in that effort is Stuart McLaughlin, CEO of Anthesis Group, one of the world's largest sustainability consultancy firms. The success rate for sustainability programs was 4%, the failure rate was 47%, and in between it was dilutive in terms of value. For some reason, over the last year or two, the scales have fallen from the eyes of um, leadership, whether at a governmental level or within business. And the realisation and truth associated with the the climate science seems to have landed. And Thesis works with over 700 experts around the world, driving environmentally friendly strategies and projects in organisations. It sounds like you got into sustainability before it became cool. <laughs> I have to say, up to about it's like a year or two ago, we were sort of the, the tree huggers in the sort of dark corner of most organisations with perhaps CSR or sustainability on the door. So, uh, yeah, things have changed dramatically, I have to say. What do you think has caused that shift? Was it the pandemic? Is it COP26? We're not sure whether this was really triggered by the pandemic, but it might have been because I think the world now recognises that crises can happen, that scientists don't always have the answers to everything. And so that might have played into it. But I think consumer preferences are changing. By 2025, we're told that 75% of people in work will be millennials and Gen Z. So we're seeing a different sort of consumer base. People are making purchasing decisions that are are more values and purpose-based. That's causing brands 
to respond and to try to get on the right side of the crisis and be part of the solution rather than being part of the problem. Just to put things in perspective, so our target is to deploy our expertise and support our clients to reduce carbon emissions by three gigatons this decade. The United States emit about five and a half gigatons per annum. So that puts into perspective our three gigaton target. In terms of what's happened over the last year or two, so the first year of lockdown, we saw emissions around the world reduced by uh, about 7%. For us to be able to meet the Paris Agreement targets, we would have to deliver that kind of reduction year on year to 2030. Obviously, you can't keep the world in lockdown for the next 10 years. So therefore, we have to find a different way. What we've found over the last year or two is that most of our clients have really doubled down on their commitment, recognizing that this is now a sort of mainstream issue. It's not something that is peripheral, but it's something that is going to determine sales growth. It's something that is going to deliver operational efficiency. It's something that's going to deliver uh, supply chain resilience. So these are, these are all mainstream business issues. And over the last two years, that seems to be recognized by organizations that, that want to bring this subject into, into the core of what they do. I feel like I've started seeing this, like organizations almost using it as a, as a USP or as a competitive advantage. Do you think we'll see an increase in that of like those who don't do it, those who don't start thinking about this stuff and start becoming more sustainable businesses are going to get left behind? You know, we talk quite a lot about customers, but we shouldn't forget about the war for talent at the moment. It's another shift that we've seen during the pandemic. I think people reflected in terms of what they want to do with their lives. And we hear about the great resignation and people want to join purpose-driven companies. They want to uh, scrutinize much more carefully the values of the organizations they're working for and how those organizations are using their talent to do good or otherwise. So it is most certainly a source of competitive advantage. But don't join me on trying to answer the question as to why the pandemic has triggered it. We're not quite sure why, but certainly something has happened. It's fascinating, isn't it? Absolutely fascinating. So are the organisations that you work with generally seeing the last two years as a time to stop and reflect? Or do you think they're seeing it as an opportunity to take some now big strides? We've seen an enormous amount of commitment from our clients and new clients over the last two years. And some clients that, that some of us have been working with for 30 years, and we struggled to get them to sign up to a single sustainability performance target for 29 of those years. And over the last year, they want to chuck out you know, a new sustainability target every month. So the level of ambition has changed dramatically. They're putting out targets where they don't know how they're going to be able to get to them. And they're not going to be able to get to them through incremental change. They're only going to be able to realize those targets through transformation change. So these are bold targets. They're not easy targets to make, but they're having to take them. And I'm talking about, for example, net zero. I'm talking about the commitment to move to circular business models. I'm talking about commitments to phase out plastic. These are bold commitments. Yeah, they're pretty, pretty big. It sounds like you're probably busier than you've ever been. <laughs> yes, most certainly. That's an easy, that's an easy one for me to answer. The answer is certainly yes. You know, some of us have waited for 30 years for this. We are busy, we're stretched, but 
Well, we're kind of excited as well. Within our thesis, we've got the skills that the world now has decided that it wants. And we need to be able to build capacity more widely to be able to reskill the populations that we're able to influence for the green economy. That's incredible, isn't it? If there's ever a time to lift your heads up and try to influence the change, this is it. So people within the sustainability community must not hunker down. The world is more willing to embrace change now than they have ever been willing to embrace change. Food for thought. Thank you, Stuart. Now, whilst the last two years have inevitably reset or re-envisioned companies, cities and even nations' attitude to travel and work, none of it would be possible without the technology to support it and the ability to be able to get stuff done from home. As we've gone remote, our data and work streams have had to follow suit. And it's something major enterprise tech companies, such as Hewlett-Packard Enterprise, my employer, have adapted to as demands have changed. Now, I'd uh, best put a tie on because I'm about to chat to my boss's 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 boss, HPE CEO, Antonio Neri. Now, we spoke to Antonio last year about how the pandemic affected both himself and the business. I actually was traveling through Europe when I started getting all the uh, reports and news about the situation in China. So um, as a company, we quickly acted and uh, we established a framework that allow us to really engage customers, partners and employees through what we call assess, address and adapt. Obviously, it was distressing. My first thought went through uh, the communities and our employees, how we keep them safe. And then the other one was how we kept them productive. You know, physical and mental health became essential. So with a year to continue to refine and adapt, how has 2021 been for Antonio and HPE? What's worked for the company and what hasn't? What have been the challenges and what have been the opportunities? I mean, obviously it has been a remarkable year on many fronts. The world has changed. And that has created challenges and opportunities. On the challenges front, obviously, working from home, do remote learning for our children and so forth has been difficult. On the other front, it has created an enormous amount of opportunity from the business perspective, because we think the enterprises of the future will be more edge-centric, cloud-enabled and data-driven. The enterprise is way more distributed than before, and it's perfectly aligned to the trends we see today. And HPE is at the nexus of those omega trends. But we think we are very well positioned to navigate through this. We did a great job taking care of our employees, the well-being, the safety, getting through the financial crisis. And now HPE is much stronger than ever before. And this is why I'm so excited as I look into 2022. When you look back at the beginning of 2020, I can't imagine you thought we're going to have a pandemic, uh, supply chain issue, and then a multitude of other things happening at the same time. What has that taught you? And perhaps what are you now doing differently because of it? Well, actually, reinforce our purpose. Our purpose is to advance the way people live and work. And I think now that purpose has become more relevant than ever. We obviously dealt with some very difficult situations. You will think in the United States, which is obviously a superpower in the world, will have all connectivity available to anyone. And, you know, we notice kids driving to parking lots to download the homework, go home, finish, and then come back and upload it because there was no connectivity available to them. And so those are the things that we think through is how we put our technology to work in this accelerated digital transformation world. 
and make sure that we don't create a digital divide and therefore the purpose to advance the way people live and work is more relevant than ever. So as a CEO, you think about not just the business aspect, but also how you give back to the communities and how you make sure that technology is used the right way. And we feel good about it. We saw an opportunity there, Michael, which actually allowed us to really think through and allocate resources into the future, despite the pandemic. But also at the same time, what we notice is that uh, customers want to consume IT more as a service, only pay for the, what they use. And that's why our HP GreenLake platform, which is the H2Cloud platform, is very uniquely positioned in the market. And this is where we're going further and faster on that strategy, which is paying off in our results. 2020 was clearly quite a pivotal year. We talked about how HP had to overnight quite quickly adapt how have we spent 2021 maybe go or maybe that didn't quite work or actually maybe let's tweak that our first priority was the the safety and the well-being of our employees but from there we learned a few things right number one the productivity was high number two the mental health it was an issue and therefore we had to do more obviously the physical part exercise was another issue so we put in place a lot of things to help our employees you know navigate through this you know we provided mental health support you know including solutions like headspace and others we also conducted live yoga classes to people to relax and then from there we we actually implemented permanent policies one of them is actually what we call the edge to office program where we learn certain jobs don't need to be at the office going forward but then provide hybrid solutions but also redesign the entire uh, footprint of our real estate for this new way to work, way more open spaces. So there is a combination of many things that came together, but it's still work to be done. And the reality is that to attract, retain talent in this new environment, you have to do more than just compensation. The young generation want to make a contribution. That's why that purpose is so important. So it's a continuum effort. We listen very closely to our employees and we adjust as needed. I did, I did one of those yoga classes. <laughs> it wasn't pretty. I'm not very flexible. Me neither. That's what I realized from that yoga class. <laughs> okay. I'd love to talk about supply chain issues, going from yoga to supply chain. <laughs> Clearly, it's, it's across the whole market and, in fact, not just the IT industry. What is HPE doing to combat that internally and support our partners, customers with supply chain issues? Yeah, the, the supply availability of uh, certain components has become a major challenge for many industries, not just the IT industries. Think about automotive industry, think about healthcare products. The fact of the matter is every product in our life now has some sort of chipset. And so that's an issue. And we think this issue is going to continue all the way through the second half of 2022. And here's what happened, right? So obviously when the pandemic started, everybody went locked down, everything halted, right? And we saw that GDP results. Then, you know, major suppliers of substrates and wafers stopped making capital investments in these very sophisticated fabs that create those uh, components. And then the demand started picking up faster than people thought. So you were caught between a higher demand and low availability. And that's why we are where we are. But HPE saw that early on, and we started making investments in our buffer inventory starting Q4 2020, believe it or not, a year ago. And we have almost double our inventory levels. However, 
there's still constraints, but we are navigating through the constraints extremely well because we have long-standing relationships, LTA agreements, long-term agreements with our suppliers, and we feel we are very well positioned. That said, there will be certain aspects that will be, instead of six to eight weeks lead times, will be more like 12 to 16 weeks lead time. What do you think the biggest trends, whether that is from a business perspective or from an IT industry perspective, what do you see as the biggest trends for 2022 and perhaps beyond? Well, there are many, right? So obviously I see this in the demand that we get every day. We see huge demand for anything that's data insights whether it's big data, whether it's uh, data analytics, whether it's simulation modeling, whether it's AI, obviously, and machine learning, that's a massive opportunity. And the world now is hyper-connected. And with the uh, advent of IoT, that's going to continue to create more data because obviously everything in our life computes. So that creates opportunity for edge computing and the integration with 5G. So that's a big opportunity for us. So I think those are the mega trends. Blockchain and other things will play as well as quantum computing. But those are added to this trend, major transition. But the value is all in the data. And that's where we as a company, we're focused on that data first modernization. So what are the big risks for HPE? Well, listen, in our industry, there is always something happening. If there is not a pandemic, there is a tsunami, there is an earthquake, there is a, a boat stuck in the channel, blocking logistics. Obviously, there is now a big change in the tax legislation across the world for a tax equalization. Everybody's paying the same amount. There is going to continue to be some sort of disruption. We'll work through them. To me, the most important thing we can do is stay focused on the customers because the truth is in the call phase. When you stay focused on the customer and you become closer and closer to them, you will be more relevant. And we are already important, but we need to be more relevant. That's the question. That's the, the journey we are going through. Yeah. And what a journey. Thanks, Antonio. HPE have clearly decided to make the most of the opportunities presented by 2021 to offer new and innovative products to help organisations cope in a changing world. After all, the old saying goes that adversity breeds creativity and tech companies have had the opportunity and responsibility both to respond to their customers' needs right now and plan ahead for the future. But you can't have the big innovative tech solutions of tomorrow without training new programmers, coders and scientists today. The last two years have had a profound effect on education worldwide, both for the businesses and institutions that make it tick and for the teachers and pupils on the ground. In the last two years, learning has gone remote in many parts of the world and schools have had to provide lessons both in the classroom and for kids at home, often with nervous and untrained grown-ups having to sit down and dust off the school books themselves. Now, at the cutting edge of STEM learning resources is the Microbit Educational Foundation. Here's their CEO, Gareth Stockdale. So we are a not-for-profit. The project started in the BBC, where we created with 29 partners a physical computing device called the Microbit. The foundation was rolled out of that. Our mission is to inspire every child to create their best digital future. We want more children to get digital skills and digital creativity. So that's what we do. Support projects around the world uh, to get people hands-on and creative with coding. We've often described it as a gateway drug. We want people to 
to get hooked on, you know, what they can do with, you know, physical computing and coding, computational thinking, digital creativity in the real world. The microbit is a brilliant way to get started with that. To date, over 6 million microbits have found their way into the hands of teenagers around the world via the foundation and its global partners. And for many, it's been a saviour of their STEM education. It's basically a coding lab at home. Our focus has always been on the classroom. In 2020, when the pandemic hit, I think in sort of July that year, 92% of the world's schools were shut that meant that we had to sort of slightly change what we were doing. We developed something called Microbit Classroom, which was developed, as it sounds, to help teachers to use the Microbit more effectively in the classroom. So you were able to share starter code with your class. You could view their progress. You could save their progress and start again. But we then adapted that to use as a virtual learning tool. One of our main editors is MakeCode, which we work with Microsoft on, and that has a virtual sort of simulator. So again, we were pushing teachers to use that rather than the physical microbit itself, because obviously there were concerns around sharing and touching shared equipment. And then just really sort of listening to teachers as they went back into the classroom on what they needed. Coming back to your initial question around challenges, obviously the semiconductor industry meltdown that's happened has been a gating factor in our ability to manufacture microbits. So that has been another major challenge over the last two years is spending a lot of time just trying to work with our partners in the semiconductor industry to try and find components, uh, which has been fun. You know, we're being viewed for allocation of parts against big tech companies. Yeah, I can imagine. I suspect you've had to have conversations where <laughs> it's a car supplier who's probably placing a much bigger order and for many more parts. <laughs> you know, we send the CEOs and the directors of those companies pictures of lovely children around the world holding up microbits and saying, do you want this child not to have a microbit? Because that's, that's what you're going to do. So we deploy emotional blackmail to try and push us up. And we've done quite well at that. And again, all flippancy aside, we've worked with a lot of these chip manufacturers and companies since the beginning of the project and they've really well supported us so we punch above our weight because we've got that long-term relationship that isn't just about buying components off them but it's about trying to change attitudes to computing and coding which eventually helps them because their skills pipeline is difficult to keep going with the you know massive boom in home learning <laughs> did the demand for microbit change so in the first months, demand lessened, but uh, since then it has grown. And I think a lot of countries and education systems are coming out of the pandemic with a newfound insight into why these skills are important and why they're going to be even more important over the coming years. You know, we're doing our first pilots in sub-Saharan Africa in Q1 next year. We've got more projects happening in Asia. That's been you know, exciting, but also a challenge, as I said, with the supply chain issues. Have there been any wider global patterns in STEM education that you've noticed? I think it's driven schools to really sort of join the 21st century and see the value of that sort of blended learning experience even more. So I think that's been the main trend for me. The sort of focus has gone from 
how do we get through the pandemic to what does this tell us about the future post-pandemic? There has been a real uptick in schools and education's interest in you know, digital skills. Can you talk to that a little bit? Like, is the level of computing education in the curriculum, is, is that adequate? It's really varied. There are some education systems that are really embracing it. So places like Finland, some of the Asian countries, Hong Kong, Taiwan, China. The UK is doing reasonably well. I think there's still more to be done. I don't think it's always given enough time or importance within the curriculum. And I think there's also a job to be done in changing the attitudes of, of parents who don't necessarily see computing and those sort of digital skills as a key requisite for future jobs. And I think that's something that needs to change as well. Where do you see yourself and the foundation in two years time? I sound like a job interview. I'm not, I'm not interviewing for a job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Leave, leave a, a nice short question for the end. So yeah, where do we see ourselves in two years time? So we want to continue to grow. I think we're at the, we're still very much at the start of our journey. I think there's still a huge amount of potential to get more children to get creative with coding and more sort of girls and underrepresented groups. We've only looked at the sort of tip of the iceberg so far as, as the, the countries and the projects that we can do. So a lot of it will be, you know, is partnership building and projects, which we've got some really exciting ones coming up over the next two years, which I can't tell you about, but watch this space. Exciting. Now, business as usual is very much no longer, well, business as usual. The logistics of running an international organisation have in some ways become simple over the last two years, but as I'm sure you'll agree, in many others, it has become markedly more complicated, especially in areas where travel is an inevitability. There can't be many fields where that's more obvious than in international sports, where you really do need to be there. I caught up with Susie Wolf, team principal of the Rocket Venture Formula E team, who gave us a bit of a rundown of how the team and the sport first reacted to COVID when we spoke to her last year. Of course, there was huge disappointment when you start to hear races being cancelled, and that has a big knock-on effect because we had a lot of organisation of partners attending, of events planned, obviously the preparation and build-up to the race locations. So from that perspective, it took a lot of change internally to manage with the situation. Susie is an absolute powerhouse in the name of motorsport, championing both Formula E and of women in motorsport. She's also just finished off the most successful season in the team's history, so 2021 can't have been all that bad. But with global travel restrictions, a team spread around the world, and the threat of lockdowns looming, how have the team and the sport not only survived, but thrived? Since we last spoke, I have to say, we've gained momentum, we've made a lot of progress and things are looking good. And, you know, finishing a season on the high is just such a luxurious position to be in because it means you bring in such a positive energy and momentum into the winter. And it's the winter where the hardest work is done. And there's a lot that we need to improve in this off season. What unexpected challenges has the team faced in 2021? Of course, COVID still presented a number of let's say, challenges for all of us because the calendar kept getting changed and then we didn't quite know when the next race would be. But that was the same for everybody. And for us, it just reaffirmed that we need to stay focused. We need to always look at the details because in the end, that's where the success comes when you put all of the details right and all of your preparation done correctly. And I think from a human perspective, it 
was also clear to see that it was great to be back together as a team. We'd spent a long time apart. We'd all had our own challenges with coping with the pandemic and all of the challenges related to the pandemic, but actually being together as a team and feeling that energy of working together towards a goal, that was something we, we all missed. Over the last two years, we've all faced issues with travel and working remotely and things like that. For the team, I guess this must have been quite a bit more challenging as you're working on a physical car. It's not like everything could be done from home and you're dealing with sending stuff to the different tracks and all that logistics. So how have you come through these challenges? Is there anything that you would like to retain or change or do differently within the team based on what you've learned over the last few years? We went through a very difficult and challenging time with the, with the pandemic, but we've certainly brought all forward those learnings from efficiency to adaptability. And I think it also made us appreciate what we do because we had a, a chance to step off the, the treadmill and actually stay at home, um, have some quality time at home. And it made us realize how much we enjoy going racing. And obviously it was hugely challenging commercially. We've got through it and it all comes down to adaptability. We as a championship have a, a lot of the time our cars are in freight. So it's not like in Formula One where the cars come back to the workshop after every race. And for us, it was very much about finding the balance of what we want to go back to because we all experienced because of our jobs, meaning we need to travel a lot, we all experienced a much healthier, more balanced uh, life when the pandemic hit with slightly less travel. And it's just about hitting the balance now, making sure that we all see each other enough, that we're in the office enough. And obviously, some roles in the team require always being in the office. That's just the nature of the job. But it means that other roles, we're trying to figure out what the best balance is to make sure that the people doing the job are hitting the sweet spot between life and work balance. Have there been changes since 2020 that have stuck? Oh, absolutely. My approach has definitely evolved because I'm a working mother and I see how much better I am at doing my work and how much more efficient I am by not being forced to be in the office every day. And we have a lot of women working in our team, some of them also as parents, but even for those fathers in the team, I think there needs to be that level of flexibility. I certainly travel much less. I do a lot more of my meetings over video, which I think is a much, much more efficient way for me to work, but also much better for the environment. I'm jumping on a plane far less than I did before. The expectation that I should jump on a plane for one meeting, those expectations have, have definitely gone. With regard to being in the office, it's still a balance um, that has to be struck because obviously, the energy in the team comes about being together. Sometimes something can come out of a, a conversation in the coffee break, which is actually important. So it's just finding that balance moving forward. What things do you think work really well in the office as opposed to stuff that's done remotely? For me, what doesn't work remotely is meetings with more than four people. Because if you want to try and create discussion or you're brainstorming, you need to feel the people in the room. You need to feel the energy and you need to be able to, to speak at any moment and also judge a person's personality and character in the meeting. So I think those bigger meetings we all try to do in the office. Yeah, I'm going to write that down for people. <laughs> I, I, you know what, I think I agree with that. You know, you can't quite hear what people are saying. You can't like interject like you can 
in person so yeah and then suddenly someone's screen's gone blank and you're like <laughs> okay, are they still there or have they checked out of the meeting <laughs> do you think doing it has made you less or more competitive as a team and i guess less or more efficient as an organization as a business we would never do anything as a team which makes us less competitive everything and i mean every single decision is thought through in regard to our performance because at the heart of the team as much as we're a business at the heart of what we do is performance and these decisions are actually more linked to getting more out of our team members because if a team member is in a good place and some are in critical positions where their mindset and their energy levels are vital to our performance and there's a lot of travel involved in the job and if small decisions can make a big difference on their well-being, it adds to performance and doesn't take away from performance. No, I, I totally agree with you on that. What do you think about the sport moving forward over the next few years? Obviously, it's key for us to get back to the iconic city centre locations and to have crowds and fans there. We have a, a different qualifying format for next season, which I think, I hope, will be very positive. The cars will have more power. The end of the races won't be as affected by safety cars. So quite some changes that we as a team need to be on top of. That's what racing is about. It's about adapting ourselves and making sure that we're on top of the new regulations. So a lot to look forward to and a lot of big challenges for us next season. Thanks, Susie. And good luck for the 2022 season. Now, for many organisations, if 2020 was a year to be coped with, 2021 has been a year to press on and plan for the future. Be that with faster cars, more ambitious sustainability targets or innovation in the boardroom and classroom. Travel restrictions, a continuing pandemic and global supply chain issues have been simultaneous challenges, any one of which would have been considered catastrophic just a couple of years ago. But successful organisations are nothing if not resourceful, and no one we've spoken to is willing to sit on their hands. After all, when the world is being reshaped around you, you might as well play a part in it. The message from all of our guests today, Susie, Antonio, Stewart and Gareth, has been one of taking it on the chin and moving on. Each and every one of us has been changed by the last two years. We've had our beliefs and confidence in the way that things should have been done shaken, and that's been a hard lesson. But it's also opened up a world of opportunity in the way we do business, in the impact business has, and in the way we're preparing the next generation for an uncertain world. I'm reminded of something Susie said last time we spoke in 2020. So I'm going to leave you with a few words from her. Happy 2022, everyone. As a team principal, but also as a wife and mother, live in the moment. You know, it's always great to plan ahead, but actually enjoy what's happening right now. Be part of the journey instead of always focusing on the end result. You've been listening to Technology Untangled. I'm your host, Michael Bird, and a huge thanks to Antonio Neri, Gareth Stockdale, Stuart McLaughlin, and Susie Wolf for speaking to us. You can find more information on today's episode in the show notes. And this is the last episode from this series of Technology Untangled, but we'll be back in the new year. So be sure to hit subscribe on your podcasting app of choice so you don't miss out. Today's episode was written and produced by Sam Datter and me, Michael Bird. Sound design and editing was by Alex Bennett with production support from Harry Morton, Ryan Sutton and Sophie Cutler. Technology Untangled is a Lower Street production for Hewlett-Packard Enterprise. Thank you so much for tuning in. Happy New Year, and we'll see you again soon.